1: My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Candace Bailey, who is here to discuss her new book from the University of South Carolina Press, Charleston Bells Abroad, the music collections of Harriet Lowndes, Henrietta Aiken, and Louisa Rebecca McCord. By studying the music owned by these three women who all lived in Charleston from the 1820s until after the Civil War, with the attention often reserved for medieval or Renaissance manuscripts, Dr. Bailey has uncovered a nuanced, picture of the lives of refined women in the Antebellum South and complicated our ideas about Charleston's cultural life. I'm so happy to welcome you to the podcast, Candace.
0: Thank you, Kristen. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Well, this is a really interesting book and such an interesting way to approach um, the history of the Antebellum South and women in it. So um, I'm excited to be able to talk to you about it today. My first question I often ask my guests is just, how did you decide on this particular topic?
0: It was quite by accident. I had been uh, doing other research in Charleston at the Charles South Carolina Historical Society. And I had a little extra time on my hands. And they said, well, have you been to the Charleston Museum? And I had not. So I called and they said, yeah, we've got a couple of things that might be of interest. And so I you know went up the street to the Charleston Museum and they would laid out some things on the floor for me to look at. And I was amazed. At what I saw. Not only was it really difficult music, it was music that had belonged to some of the first families of Charleston, you know, the really important names. And the the importance of that for me is that I try to put together music books with the biographies of the people who own them. It's what we call micro histories, right? I'm trying to learn about a topic through the small amount of information that we have um, about mostly women from the 19th century. Many of times, this is the only thing we have about them is their music books. But for these women in Charleston, there are numerous references to them all over the place. So to be able to put this wealth of material together was really exciting to me.
1: So the music that you're studying, um, most of it is in binders volumes, and not everyone who's listening to this might um, know what a binders volume is. So you can just, can you just describe a little bit about uh, what a binders volume is and the kind of music maybe that you normally see it, uh, see in them? just I guess just give us an idea of how these are important um, documents, or as you say, um, can can uh, lead to a microhistory of a a particular person.
0: A Binders Volume is a book that's been put together. It consists of sheet music, individual pieces usually, that the person who owns the book has collected. And it can be 10 pieces, it can be 40 pieces. It it really varies according to lots of um, factors. But it's almost always published music. Occasionally, it's manuscript music, and when it is, that means something, of course. These volumes were bound. They usually had a leather spine, leather corners, and some sort of paperboard covering on the front and back. Sometimes they have an index, sometimes they don't. They were extremely popular between about 1830 and about 1880. You can find them much earlier than that. And of course, they continued after that. But that's kind of the really the heyday of the Binder's Volume is right in the middle of the 19th century. Most women had one. Often it was bound right before they got married. So it went with them when they got married as one of their own possessions. Women didn't own a lot in this period. So to have something like a Binder's Volume really meant something. For the wealthier women, such as the women in this book, they might have several binders volumes. Sometimes they were bound at one time or close to each other so that they match, so you can, they would look pretty on the bookshelf. Sometimes they do not match because they were bound in different places by different people over time. But they're our primary source of music for a really broad and expansive culture uh, for the 19th century among women.
1: So did they then play from the volumes when they were married, or is this an indication that they're putting away the music because it's in these volumes now? What happens to this music? What's in there?
0: Well, this we're not entirely sure. Um, The music that is in the volumes often has been played, whether it was played before or after binding is often difficult to say. Sometimes there are indications that you need to go to another piece in the same volume, and that suggests that they're using the volume itself. Sometimes the volumes are very tightly bound, and there's no way they would have stayed open on a piano desk. Um, So in those cases, we think they were not as used um, primarily after they were bound. Of course, the young women would have memorized a lot of the music in these volumes. They would have done them in recitals and performances around town. Something someone might call a musicale or just playing for their friends. And very often they didn't use their music for this. So they might be pieces they had memorized, but I think we have to be very careful. We can't say definitely they were used for playing or they weren't used for playing, for example.
1: And, um, was the music, I, well, I'll, I'll back up for these three women. It seemed like they were primarily vocalists and most of their music was vocal. And I guess I came to this thinking that binders volumes were mostly piano music and that uh, women who were taught music, uh, in the home, the sort of middle and upper class women, uh, were learning piano. Is that wrong? Should I have been thinking of them more as singers?
0: It, they often studied both. Uh, Louisa Rebecca McCord, for example, played some of her pieces as well as sang them. We know this because there are fingerings in there. Uh, So we can tell that she has studied both. Harriet Lowndes reportedly studied harp, piano, and voice, harp being a common instrument in this period. Henrietta Aiken was by far a singer. She had a few piano pieces, but she has some very difficult vocal music, and her reputation among her friends was as a singer. So some women have just piano music. Some women have vocal music. Some women mix them in the same volume. Wealthier women might have a volume of piano music, a volume of vocal music. Some women played guitar, and occasionally you find complete volumes of just guitar pieces. So there's no one rule for um what these women were doing.
1: So if so someone like Henrietta Aiken who was playing piano for her
0: well her teacher would have been one of the people playing and her mother may have been playing her friends may have been playing because that's how these situations would have um happened in the 19th century. You know, you might come over to my house and bring your book along and You're a singer, and I have a piano, of course, because you wouldn't be coming to my house probably if I didn't have a piano, and you would expect me to be able to play. Often these women talk about sight reading, playing things from sight, so that was a very probable way that the music could have happened. Of course, we do know that some women played and sang together at the same time as well. You touched on
1: this in your first answer, but I, I was thinking about this, and uh, when I was reading as well, is—is is this the binder volumes? Is this one of the most important sources for um, understanding? the kind of lives of these refined, I I guess I'm thinking of the most refined women, women who have musical education, who are middle or upper class. I don't know if that's the right way to think about them. but, But is this really the only source we have, or maybe the most numerous source we have for women in that situation?
0: As to whether these are the only sources for women depends largely on their social class. It is more likely to be the only source of women who were... Farther down on the economic ladder, uh, middle class women, this may be the only thing that we have from their life, only aspects of their existence now. Um, the richer women often had other things that they were able to say because their houses were preserved or their family's letters. And collections and everything that goes with them were preserved because, of course, they're the wealthy ones. They're the famous ones. They're the ones that everybody knows about. It also happens that for the Charleston group, some of the women who wrote famous recollections and memoirs around 1900 give us material to supplement their binders volumes. I think this is a a fascinating aspect of this research. And, of course, you have to be very careful because women writing memoirs around 1910 were doing this with an emphasis on the South as uh, a glorious past. So, of course, you have to look at it through those eyes. But nonetheless, when they talk about studying music at school and they mention some of their friends, and then you find their binders volumes that help corroborate this evidence in their diaries— That's really cool, but it also happens to be the elite. It's very rare that it would be the middle-class women who do this. Some women, for example, we have Louisa Rebecca McCord's wedding dress is on display in the Charleston Museum. She wrote recollections of her life. We have her Binders volumes, and her mother was a very famous woman. So there's a lot that we can learn about Louisa Rebecca McCord, as opposed to some of the other women i Look at in my broader research, who aren't connected to famous families, who didn't have a lot of money, who didn't have a wedding dress that was saved even through the war or whatever. So it, it, as with everything, varies tremendously. That's one of the reasons why in this book I stuck to these three people because their social circumstances were close enough to give us comparisons of how. Three women who had a lot in common experienced music differently. And that, again, is where the the microhistory comes into play in helping us rewrite the narratives for the broader understanding of a period.
1: Um, I really want to talk more about that. But first, but just to help people orient exactly who you're talking about, and then maybe mm-hmm. we can dig into how these micro histories are helping us understand, you know, that class uh, in Charleston and, and the city of Charleston better, you know, sort of how do you get from the micro to the macro? I'd love for you to sort of flesh out a little bit who each of these women are, um, you know, and, and just, just to help our um, you know, people listening sort of to orient themselves to um, who you who exactly are you
0: talking about? Sure. Um, Harriet Lowndes was born in 1812 and died in 1892. She was from Charleston, Huguenot descent, and she married William Aiken, who was a governor of the state, very prominent person, uh, in 1831. She grew up in Charleston, but starting with her honeymoon in 1831, she traveled to Europe, particularly to Paris, at least six times before the Civil War. And if we think about how difficult that must have been, particularly before steam travel in the 40s. It's a pretty remarkable desire to go overseas. And she went and she stayed for a long time, like two years at a time when she was going. She had a view of the world that placed her family and those in her immediate social circle above those in her uh, local town. And she remarked, this is one of my favorite things about Harriet Lowndes to tell folks. And after the revolutions in Paris in 1848, she's over there walking around the barricades and the ruins, if you think of you know, Les Mis. And she turns to her co- cousin and says, a republic. I did not come here for a republic. I have had enough of that at home. And I think that kind of gives us an idea of who she was. They lived in the Faubourg Saint Germain, which is where the French nobility lived. They spoke French. They brought back French things to the house that they had in Charleston. And I don't mean just paintings and music, I mean, they brought back the wallpaper and the coverings and the linens and the silver service and a stove, even a French stove in the house. So she was someone who very much saw herself at the height of sophistication in Charleston and who wanted to really live the life of Paris in Charleston. Her daughter, Henrietta Aiken, was born in 1836 and died in 1918. She was the only child of Harriet and William to survive to adulthood. She traveled to France at least four times before the Civil War, so between 18. 18- 48 and 1859. She was there four times. She spoke French fluently. It seems that all of her study in music, or not all, but most of her music study was done in Paris. She owns a lot of music from Paris. She began singing the same unusual French repertory that her mother sang as a young girl, but she quickly moves on to the more popular bel canto composers, such as Donizetti and Bellini and even Verdi, quite young. She sings in foreign languages. She collects music wherever she goes. So she has music from Switzerland. She has music from Italy. She has music from France. She has music from Berlin. And she makes a name for herself as a performer. She seems to have been somewhat of um, not, I won't say she wasn't popular in Charleston, but I don't think she got out and about as much in Charleston as some of the women who stayed there more. She led a rather quiet life after the Civil War, um, not doing much. She didn't write recollections. She didn't publish that sort of thing. Louisa Rebecca McCord was born in 1845, so nine years younger than Henrietta, and she died in 1928. Her mother was the famous Southern intellectual Louisa Susanna McCord Chivas, and her mother took Louisa Rebecca to Europe in 1857-58. No, I'm sorry, 1858-59, they all run together, um, and was a staunch Confederate. They came back right after Lincoln had been uh, nominated and her mother just saw this as the end. Louisa Rebecca, being so young when she was in Europe, gives us a an account of what it was like to be 13, 14, 15, running around in foreign countries without a lot of supervision, it seems, which is very different from Henrietta's experience. Her mother did not let her just run around unsupervised. And Louisa Rebecca gives us, I think, a truer sense of how the war impacted their lives in that you can see in her last Binders volume manuscript music that her teacher had to copy because they couldn't get uh, printed copies at this time because of the scarcity of, of paper and so forth in the South by the end of the war. Nonetheless, she's still singing Verity Arias, the latest to come over, or almost latest to come over. Um, But we see this, how her volume reflects these changes. So very different from the other two women and yet lived a life whose trajectory seemed to follow a, a similar course.
1: So where was the source of the wealth for these women all uh, in plantations or these merchants where how did they get to be so Oh they're rich?
0: they're definitely planter class which was the highest class merchants were nowhere near the um same prestige as being a planter uh, Henrietta Aiken's father or her grandfather had come over from Scotland and he knew that even though he was, had accumulated substantial wealth, he had to own a plantation in order to to move up the social ladder.
1: And um, one of the things that's interesting to me and and came out just in describing these three women is um, the, the importance of these transatlantic connections, but not connections necessary to England. I always think of Charleston as sort of The southern city that was trying to emulate the um, sophistication of the British court, but that's not at all what you found. Can can you talk a little bit about um, Charleston as um, a city that's so tied up in these transatlantic ties, and how you know what you're seeing helps us understand um, that part of Charleston?
0: Sure. Um, A lot of people associate Charleston with England, and rightly so. Um, There's a lot of evidence that supports those connections to the past. And Louisa Rebecca McCord did spend more meaningful time in London than did the lowndes Aiken family. But the French ties are, I think, a very um, representative of how they were after fashion the ties with England, um, some people sent their their sons there to study law or their sons there just to study. Um, you know, they have these connections that go far back into the 18th or 17th centuries. But the French thing is more wanting to look French, you know, French fashion, French clothes, French um, ways of decorating the house, French behaviors. Um, French language, of course, was the language of uh, Europe of the high courts in this period. And we think about Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin spending time in Paris. That's what these uh, women were after. I'm not so sure that the men were that, shall we say, hung up on being Parisian. But I know that the, the women definitely were. Of course, the odd thing with this is when they got to Paris, they fraternized with other Americans who were in Paris. So the American ambassador, uh, John Thompson from Virginia, for example, uh, in the 1850s, was the main um, host for a lot of Americans who had come over to Europe. They did not seem to mix a lot with the native people. They seem to have gone for the sights, gone for the culture, gone for the shopping, definitely, but not for getting to know the people.
1: So that's fascinating. You're sort of drawing a picture of Charleston, where the separate spheres, you know, goes all the way into the home, so to speak, so that it sort of looks French, but um, the kind of. Legal underpinnings, or maybe the public underpinnings uh, um, that men were dealing with, was more English. Is that one way to think of it? Yeah, that? I
0: think that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, you know, some of the men were very much into French things. Uh, we making read French. He'd like to be in France uh, as much as his Harriet did. But if we think about just kind of general issues, um, when we think about the South, we think about the Civil War. There was a, lots of a mercantile connection between the South and England. Of course, the cotton mills. The the clo- you know that's where the cotton was going uh, most of the time from the South and England. Of course, had this very late response to the Civil War. They knew that slavery was wrong, but they also needed the raw goods from the South. So um, I think those connections kind of reflect the men's interest in being in London, particularly, but also um, Liverpool and, and some other places, whereas the women were not, they weren't a part of that world for the most part, so they didn't see the need. It seems to me that that Harriet Lowndes got out of um, England as soon as she could. Most of the time, she they would arrive in Liverpool and come down Um, through the country to London and then pass over onto the continent. She did go to the great art exhibition at Manchester, for example, but um, it seems that she was very much wanting to stay in France. They also went to Italy, but they don't say nearly as much about Italy as Paris.
1: So all, we, all these women spent a lot of time abroad. Um, you talk about in the book, a lot of, uh, particularly with uh, Henrietta, how much of her music clearly reflected um, a deep and abiding interest in French music that seems to be unusual as if you look across all binders volumes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these binders volumes in more detail are maybe different and the same as what you have seen in your broader research into binders volumes? I know, that you have done deep research into this, you mentioned in your book that you've looked at at least a thousand of these. So you have a pretty, pretty good idea of what a typical binder's volume looks like. So how are you seeing these particular, this particular set from uh, from these three aristocratic women being different and the same from the sort of general, um, general ones that you see all the time?
0: Well, the, the first thing, and this is one of the things that that made me think, oh, I could write this into a book, is looking at Harriet Lowndes' collection. Because it is vastly different from anything else in the United States that I have been able to find um she owned her what I call her first binders volumes is very typical American fair it has English music, it has American music um just nice little songs, and then her second, third, and fourth binders volumes contain a repertory that is. Today, obscure French salon music. And when I say obscure, it's not, it's obscure to most of us. Even musicologists today know very little about this, but it was unknown in the United States in the 1820s when she was playing it. And it did not circulate widely outside of Paris. So, in that regard, It made me wonder, why does this woman have this music? What is this all about? And that's where I started. So before she's married, she has the four Binders volumes. One's typical, and then the other three are far from typical. She gets married in 1831, and she buys all these full opera scores, piano vocal arrangements, which again is unusual. And quite frankly, it's useless because... When would you perform an entire opera in your parlor? Oh, why did you need this whole copy of um, Der Freischütz, for example? And they're in foreign languages, but they're all bound to match. So I think it's part of her way of, of showing off, putting them up there on the, on the um, bookcase. You know, oh, these are my operas that I bought while I was in Paris. Moving on to her daughter. One of the fascinating things about Henrietta Aiken is that her music was not bound for the most part. There are a few uh, method books, books by which you learn how to do something, that were bound, which is unusual because most people didn't bind their method books because they were kind of embarrassed. You're not supposed to see the work. You know, you, you want to see the finished product. But she bound her work, which is almost all in French. So her piano method books in French her vocal method books in French. Possibly to say, see, I have the French book or possibly say, I have so much money. I can bind my method books. And then she didn't bind her other music. And I propose in the book that she didn't bind it because it's a way of saying, oh, well, if I lose it, I can replace it. It's not that big of a deal to me. You know, I I had the money. I can do this. Her songs are Aria's. Contains some of the most difficult repertory that was sung on the stage, and it's not transposed. It's not made easier, and it's all in the original languages. Oftentimes, in other binders' volumes, you would get, say, Bellini's *Casta Diva* from *Norma*, very famous aria, and it might be transposed down lower so it make it easier to sing, or it would have the fast bits made simpler so that an amateur could sing it. But in Henrietta's case, it's exactly as it appears today. If you were to buy a piano or a vocal copy to study for, you know, if you're an opera major at school, it's the same version. So she must have been a, an astounding singer. And the piece that was composed for her by her teacher in Charleston, Pietro Basvecchi shows a very nimble voice with a wide range, um, covering a couple of octaves, um, lots of fast notes in a very expressive style. So she must have been quite an accomplished singer, and more so than her contemporaries. Turning to Louisa Rebecca McCord, her collection also reflects the music she bought overseas. Uh, The first book, as is the case with Harriet Lowndes, is very typical of what a young girl would have been singing in Charleston or Columbia's where she was at first, um, in you know the 1850s. But she goes to London and she she writes on her music when she was shopping at Vincent Novella's store, what she bought there. She talks about her uh, Italian voice teacher in Paris. She buys music in Paris. She buys music in Switzerland. She buys music in Naples. She buys music everywhere she goes. And some of this is popular in America, and some of it is not. The last volume of hers is what I call her Confederate volume. It contains Confederate imprints, which are music that was published in the South, music that was composed in the South that was pro-Confederate. It has some other kind of typical songs for the period, and it has complicated, difficult opera arias as well. So while it reflects the same journeys that Henrietta Aikens did, I guess because she's 10 years, nine years younger, it doesn't quite have the breadth of Henrietta Aikens. There could be other reasons to explain that as well. Um, We can only postulate, but... um, They're all very different collections, and they differ substantially from, let's say, a woman who spent the entire war in Augusta, Georgia, or who spent the entire war in a small rural area, or who grew up in a rural area and never traveled. Their music is much more likely to be the same songs that we find all over the South, um, which, by the way, is not often Stephen Foster but uh, he's usually by Franz Abt or Henry Bishop's um, Home Sweet Home or Believe Me If All Your Endearing Young Charms and uh, just those kinds of songs or dance music. That's typical. What we find in the book that I'm looking at is not the typical repertory.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: And you think that's because they're in Charleston particularly, which is a so much more sophisticated city and they want to join that sophistication or even lead that? Or or is it about their wealth? What what do you think accounts for that um, really marked difference between these books and uh, um, at least some of the books of music that... Um, or some of the pieces they owned and the sort of norm that you see in the South for that time period.
0: I think these differences come from uh, a group of things. Being in Charleston certainly influences things. Uh, The women who were in Charleston or the women who were in New Orleans do look at things differently than women who were in Raleigh or um, even Richmond. They look to Europe, they look to France for um, taste, fashion, and, and just how one should go about being elite. They also have to have a lot of money. Of course, they wouldn't be elite if they didn't have a lot of money. And so they kind of, that kind of goes hand in hand in Charleston. So you've got some of the richest people in town who are going to France, but they're going and and absorbing French culture also because they are in Charleston. Um, There are other women who were even more, you know, more wealthy, wealthier who did not spend so much time in Europe, who did not bring back such amazingly unique or different uh, binders volumes. And that I think is, is a combination of being in Charleston, having the money, and also having that desire to lead the fashion. I think there was a very strong uh, tendency among the elite to one up the others. Um, and I think we see that clearly in Harriet Lowndes and Henrietta Aiken's lives for sure. Um, I think it's partly why we don't encounter Henrietta Aiken very often in the Uh, letters and diaries of other young women her age in Charleston. It's one reason she's in France so much. And I don't think she um, hung out with them that frequently. Um,
1: One of the things that we've touched on a couple of times, but haven't really talked about specifically is, you know, they exactly what the musical lives were like for women of this class. And these particular women in the sense of how did they get trained you know, how extensive was their training. And then you've, you've mentioned performances several times, but I don't want to leave people with the impression that they were going on down to the Charleston theater and uh, <laughs> throwing a Friday night for her recitals for, for the paying public, because I don't think that's what oh, was happening. No, no, no. So, so can you talk a little bit about, yeah, sort of, you know, what is the musical or cultural life like for these very refined, um, uh, uh, women of this period?
0: The uh, women would have first had their music lessons from family members. It seems that they would have, from a very young age, had their mother or their older sister or a cousin who was staying for a long time kind of introduced them to the uh, rudiments of music. These women in, in the book t- did not go to school. A lot of others did, and a lot of other wealthy women went to school. So It's not that the wealthy went to school or the wealthy didn't go to school. It varied, again, according to what the parents wanted to do. And Harriet Lowndes and William Aiken clearly wanted Henrietta Aiken to receive her education in Paris from private tutors. When she was in Charleston, she also had private tutors. She had voice teachers, uh, music teachers that would come to her house and give her lessons at home. So did uh, Louisa Rebecca McCord. Even during the Civil War, her mother would send her coach out to, into Columbia and bring the, one of the local music teachers from the girls' school out to teach the girls in the neighborhood. So they had private lessons for their um, voice and piano. Um, nobody talks much about playing guitar. Their performance, their musical life, would have been playing for each other, Playing for themselves, playing for their family. And of course, there was a very unrelenting set of visitations that people would do. So certain mornings of the week, you would be at home and all those people with whom you had a social relationship could call on you. And during this time, women often sang for each other, played the piano for each other. It could be women and men, by the way. Um, There was dancing. It could be all women dancing. It could be women and men dancing. But someone had to play the piano in the background for this to happen. So this was a very common occurrence. They would have been doing this almost daily because you you have the people coming to your house. And then, of course, you have to go visit to the other people. So there was this kind of interaction. There was we know that when um, the Aiken family went out to Jehasi, which was their plantation island, that the piano went with them and that Henrietta's mother, Harriet, wrote to a friend in Charleston to please send them a copy of an aria from Rigoletto so that uh, Henrietta could learn it. And then she writes later that she's been hearing her daughter sing that aria. So she knows that she's been working on it and singing for herself. Another thing that women did was learn the music that they needed to know to be of the right class. And what I mean by this is opera was something that everyone had to know. One woman calls it being opera mad. And the way you learned opera music, if you are in a rural southern area, was by buying one of these greatest hits arrangements of all the popular tunes from a given opera and learning to play those on the piano so that you would recognize, you know, the main theme from Le Huguenot when you heard it, or that you would know when somebody refers to another piece that, oh, yes, I know that piece, because that's how you learned it. It's kind of like circulating CDs. So the opera um, arrangements were another way that women played for each other, but also played for themselves so that they could learn what the latest music was. Now, as to the performances, most of them have been these kind of private things at home. And, and of course, people talk about the parlor being a semi-public, semi-private place because there are people from the outside coming in. It's not just your family, but they had to have been vetted through the social system. So it's not gonna be just anybody who comes into the parlor at the Aiken Rhett House, for example. There are other opportunities for performances in school graduation recitals. So Bessie Austin of another important Charleston family talks about the music she sang and played um, when she was at school and her binders volumes events that she was a very talented pianist and quite a good vocalist as well. That would have been a place where they might've played some of these pieces. And that is, again, it's not private, but it's not exactly public because most of the audience would have been invited. To the graduation. There are references to concerts where they were doing, say, Haydn's creation, and they have a, a named professional singer. And then they might say, And with further clad was performed by an amateur of the city. Who was that amateur of the city? We don't know. Um, one of Bus Vecchi's famous pieces was dedicated to Henrietta Aiken. And he put on a concert for the local Calhoun, Ladies Calhoun Monument Association. Was Henrietta the performer? Maybe, but you couldn't put her name in the paper. That would not have been done. And ladies of this class would also not have been paid to sing. They would have been uh, volunteering their services for this type of fundraising event if they did perform in public.
1: Well, that actually brings up this last comment about not knowing who was performing in these more charitable, more publicish ish events, um, because it was not done to uh, allow a lady's name to be in the paper. That, uh, the whole time I was reading, I was really struck by both the um, amount of information that you have managed to glean from deeply contextualizing and deeply studying this small group of documents and this small group of women, but also the limitations of that same kind of study that, you know, what you what we may never know because um, of a lack of documentation. Can you talk a little bit about that, about sort of maybe the challenges of doing this kind of history on this particular class of women?
0: It, this, these challenges actually girl across the board um, because anyone who wanted or who had the aspirations of owning a binders volume or who owned a binders volume saw themselves as somewhere on the genteel scale and genteel ladies did not put their names in the paper. So it doesn't have to be the rich ones. It could also be the, you know, lower down middle class women. Um, But the reticence to put women's names, even in letters to each other, they might just say Mr. B or Miss and then just draw a line. So you're not sure who it is that they are talking about. And then by some means you may find six years later that these other people knew each other and you can put together that, oh, this is who they're talking about. Um, These sorts of uh, proprieties for the 19th century um, Southern culture, at least, do give us a lot of blanks, a lot of places where we have to try to fill in what is happening, who the people are, where they are. Luckily, um, it's there's a lot of newspapers, and that helps locate at least the professional performers and helps to understand what the concert life would have been like. And then if these people happen to leave memoirs, um, That is also most helpful. Some of the other limitations that I have found that are not so obvious are deal with the agency of the binders volume itself. So when you have a binders volume... Everybody says, well, this shows that so-and-so was patriotic. Um, this happened at a conference I was at last weekend. There was a lot of Confederate music in the volume. And um, somebody says, oh, well, they're clearly pro-South. And I said, well, maybe. Um, because it may be that their father who bought this music, and he was pro-South, and she didn't really care. Or it may be that her father or her mother decided what music was going to go into the volume, not her. So we have to be careful about assigning too much agency to the owners unless we can find evidence within them that they did choose these. And the evidence would be like my favorite song or you know, writing in these things on the volumes. Uh, other types of problems that I run into is the fact that women are not named. When you look at uh, some nice passports or you look at ship's records of who has entered the U S and it might say, you know, William it and three women. And you don't know exactly who those three women are again, because women weren't supposed to be named. That's a very frustrating um, thing to find. And sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're not. Um, well, I think that
1: brings up um, sort of the I love that your comment about not assuming agency on the part of these young women, that I think there is a tendency on the part of modern scholars or scholars of this generation of wanting to find as much agency as possible. And maybe sometimes we think uh, we we find too much. Right. And mm-hmm. we forget um, the extent to which um Women and people of color—you know anyone who wasn't a white man—and um, even you know poorer white men as well would have um, would have very little agency over their lives. Um, and I, that sort of tension between seeing, you know, William Aiken and three women—what does that mean? Does you know how much of an appendage were those three women really in real life, and and how much of that is sort of the fiction of the way that um, the culture wants to treat women? And it sounds like you come up against this time and again in your research, trying to figure out that, that line, I guess, or, or, or negotiate that, that difficulty.
0: I do, because when women are traveling, for example, how do we know that they chose where to travel? How do we know that you know, they wanted to go to West Point or, um, you know, when they're going on a circuit somewhere, X, Y, or Z, it's, it's frustrating. Sometimes you do know. Sometimes there are women who are such a force of personality, such as uh, Louisa Rebecca McCord's mother, that you know that she was in charge. But there are other cases where there's not enough material to be able to discern who, what, you know, why, definitely. Uh, when, we can usually pretty get to yeah. get. But, um, yeah, it, it's frustrating. It's like, who, who chooses the piano? who um decides where the piano goes who decides what dances they can learn cuz you've got to have somebody to teach the dances you've got to um see a reason to have the dances some women thought it was you know bad to polka some women thought it was you know too close to waltz and that you find these vineyards, vines full of waltzes um yeah it's just it's there are things you have to stop and say wait a minute you know, who who did this and how might it have happened and could it have happened another way? So what do you
1: think is the responsible thing to do? I was thinking about this so often as I read that your book Um to incorporate this richness of detail and the richness of information that you found about these particular women, um, how do we incorporate that information with the kinds of studies, as you say, sometimes generalizations have their place. We're looking at the whole city of Charleston or we're looking at the antebellum South or whatever. What do you think the responsible thing to do is um, as we try to kind of balance the specific through the,
0: and the general? <laughs> I, I, I wish I had the answer. Um, that's part of the reason this book I'm writing now has been taking me so long, is that I have so much information that disproves you know, what I said the paragraph before, <laughs> or, or is different, um, that it's really difficult to uh, muster it all together and then to step back and say, okay, what can we say? Um, But yet I think it's what we need to do. And I think and I hope that with uh, technology, it will become easy to find a place to put all the details and all the research that that I have on women, hundreds of women, and be able to put that as a place to say, you can see this here, and then be able to step back and say, all right. When you're dealing with New Orleans, it's this way. Or when you're dealing with women, there was a big middle class. There was a big working middle class for women in the South in the antebellum period. You know, Southern historians debate whether there was a middle class or not. And yet all these women are working and they're not the elite. So there must have been a middle class. So just, you know, being able to find those sorts of things but being aware from the get-go that there are going to be exceptions and to point out that these people did exist. Yes, the ones that we've generalized, they existed too, but they are not the whole story. They are far from the whole story. And I think the responsible thing to do is to first re-examine the generalizations. As I hinted out a while ago, Stephen Foster is not representative of parlor music in the antebellum period or in the Civil War period, or even during the Southern Reconstruction period. Um, Why he's become to represent that that is another question. But to say, okay, if he's not, then who is? Acknowledging the importance of something like opera everywhere. um, There are some generalizations, but but we need to re-examine the ones that we've been given for, uh, against the data it's now collected and see how true they ring. Uh,
1: well, and actually referring to your latest project brings me to my last question. What are you working on right now? It sounds like you are um, have a, a project well in hand from what you just said.
0: I do. I am in the revision state of a book entitled Women, Music, and the Performance of Gentility in the Mid-19th Century South. Uh, which will be with the uh, University of Illinois Press, and I am working with a larger group of um, scholars of the digital humanities, scholars, uh, librarians, acquisitions, catalogers, etc., cetera, to try to put together a uh, database of binders volumes across the country so that we can really investigate what they were doing in Colorado, what they were doing in San Francisco, what they were doing in Boston. How is this different from what they were doing in Mobile, Alabama? Um, And really have a place for people to contribute their um, own uh, research findings. Um, I'm also working together with a new group of, of women scholars in Europe who are interested in American salon or parlor culture. And so we're going to be putting together some workshops uh, later, starting later this year to kind of introduce the American salon ideas to the more familiar European ones. And what does that say about transatlantic cultures and so forth? So those are some of the things I'm working on at the moment.
1: Well, all of those sound fascinating, and explain to me why you are so busy all the time. <laughs> so, that is a lot to have going on, and um, I appreciate you taking time out of that schedule to talk to us about um, about your book. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm so pleased to have the opportunity.
1: And uh, just to remind our listeners, this is, uh, we've been talking to Dr. Candace Bailey, author of Charleston Bells Abroad, the music collections of Harriet Lowndes, Henrietta Aiken, and Louisa Rebecca McCord, and I'm Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music.